John chapter 6 is where we're at. And we're, we looked last week at the, the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going we're gonna to just pick up just a couple of verses this morning of the feeding of the 5,000 and, and, and look at the response that the, um, the people had. And I'm going to just pick up for, for a little bit of context. So I'll pick it up in verse 12 of John chapter 6. And it says, And when they had uh, eaten their fill, so all the people who were there, they had eaten their fill. And he said to the disciples, Gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, and they filled 12 baskets with pieces from five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign, that's important here, when they saw the sign which had been performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15, so Jesus, aware that they were intended to come and to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into your word, that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us, that if need be, that you would challenge us. And yet, Lord, we pray that your word would have its will, your will, in our hearts this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God that uh, penetrates between jo uh, joint and moral soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We thank you, Lord, for the word that was in the beginning with God and was God. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So as I looked at this passage and kind of trying to get a, a little bit of an overview of these two verses, actually three verses that I want to look at this morning, um, 13, 14, and 15, where they gathered up the loaves. We did actually talk about verse 13 last week, where they gathered up the loaves, and there were 12 remaining, which... Um, Twelve is the number of government. Twelve is also the number of God's people. And, and, and so in this sign, it should be hearkening back in the script those who were there and even to us today. In this particular sign, it's, it's really a replication to some degree of the feeding of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Because the, these, uh, these people, they're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. They are in a wilderness area. There wasn't any place really where they could even go uh, and buy food. There was no takeout. There was no Uber Eats. There was none of that stuff at all. There was, uh, and, and so they're out in the wilderness, and they're interested, I guess that might be a good way to describe it. They are interested in, in trying to understand who this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is. Some of them are hungry for the truth. 
Some of them are just looking for something novel. There's always a mixed crowd because even within the crowd, I think that's a representation of the mixture within our own heart. Hopefully, we are hungry for God's word, but sometimes, sometimes it's almost a matter of, of, of that curiosity as well or wanting to know something so that we're able to play Bible trivia a little bit better. And, and so there's always that mixture. And what I, what I love about the Lord, among other things, is that he takes us where we are. As always, very, very flawed, and yet very loved people. We're very flawed, but we're very loved. And, 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 and the Lord desires to, to, to breathe the breath of life into who we are. And not only to save us, but then to grow us in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I'm reading the short little passage, and I'm thinking about the response of the crowd, I, I started just taking notes and I wrote down, doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. They wanted to make him king right then and there. I'm not sure if that was really even an apt description of what's really happening here. I wrote her down anyway, told you about it already, you know. But they had an understanding of who Jesus is. But they did not understand enough to allow him to take the lead. That's a huge difference. Particularly with some of us who have been Christians for a long time. We, we, we know of the Bible. And, and, and we can very easily run with the Bible and, and try to apply it into situations and try to speak it, if you will, into situations that don't necessarily uh, are consistent with that which the Lord is attempting to lead us into. And sometimes it's, it's, we, we really, I think we need to hold the, the, the posture of humility. And I, and I think that's what James was talking about. And that's what Peter was talking about when he said, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will do what? He will lift you up in due time. But it's, it's this idea uh, of not getting ahead of God which is easy to do. Particularly in, in the culture that we live in, that we want to get it done now, get it done quick, get it done right, and move on to the next task. And what always strikes me is that God is never in a hurry. Have you noticed that? He's, I don't think he's really in a hurry. And... and his will will be accomplished. Now, among other things, he has the advantage of foreknowledge, right? He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what will happen next. But there are times, I think, in each of our lives, and, and I want to say, too, this isn't the worst thing in the world, Okay. But it's, it's what, you, what you do with your mistakes. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to make mistakes. I think, I think, I think 
where they are valuable is that in our own mistakes, in our Christian growth, they're, they're very valuable to teach us things if we allow them to teach us. But they, had, they understood who Jesus was. They identified him as the prophet. I'll get into that in a moment. But not enough to really allow him to take the lead. Because what was happening, and, and I'm, I'm convinced that, that more and more that we become saved, that the Lord saves us, we become children of God, we become born again of the Spirit, uh, but our self-will is still there. Paul understood this in Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't do them. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing them anyway, who will deliver me from this body of death. And he's struggling with that in Romans chapter 7. And then he comes in Romans chapter 8 and says, Therefore now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who are not walking according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. But the self-will needs to be purged. It's called sanctification. It's, it's really a lifelong process whereby we, be, we are, follow my thinking here, I'm going to use two different tenses. We are present tense and will become future tense followers of Jesus. Good, I got some of you thinking. I can see it on your face. Oh, what does that really mean? Think about that. And we see the, this type of usage in the scriptures, do we not? The Bible tells us that we are saved. The Bible tells us that we are being saved. And the Bible tells us that we will become saved. Which verses are true? Not A, B, C, or D, but D, all the above, right? And so there's this, this purging that is going on. And, and we'll see this more evidently as we move further into this passage. First of all, it tells us in verse 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign, incidentally, there are seven signs in the book of John. John doesn't focus a lot on miracles as mystical, actually, as he is. I find that fascinating. This is the fourth of seven. You have John chapter 2, where Jesus turns the water into wine. John chapter 4, where, where Jesus heals uh, the rich man's son. John chapter 5, where Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And now here, the fourth miracle is the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. It was a sign. It was a sign. That's important to understand this, though. As we work our way through the chapter, we'll start to see not only the significance of the sign, and the significance, I believe, of signs. But also that the working of signs in and of themselves rarely, if ever, lead a person to a complete faith in Christ. Jesus will, uh, and Jesus will affirm that later on in this particular chapter, right around verse 51. 
when he, when he tells him, you're not even coming for signs, you're coming for a free meal. And so there is that strange tension whereby the sign itself draws our eyes to look upon Christ. But the sign is also an invitation. It is not an end to itself. It is an invitation to further explore and to further press in and to further understand the things of God and to allow the Spirit of God to wash over us and to actually convert us. I feel it's the same way with rationalism. There really weren't apologetic ministries until 19th, 20th centuries. As if we can prove the existence of God. As if we can argue someone into the kingdom of God. You see, the person who chases after signs... not after God, but after signs, needs more signs to sustain their faith. The person who chases after rationalism and reasoning needs more rational arguments and more reasoning to sustain their faith. Both come short, I believe, that's my opinion. I know your mileage. Some of you are going to vary on this, and that's fine. Both, I believe, fall short of a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit when Jesus told Nicodemus that the wind blows where it wills. You cannot tell where it comes from, and you cannot tell where it is going. So it is with those who were born again of the Spirit. We must be born again. We must experience new birth. We must experience a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us from the inside out. And that doesn't happen unless we permit him to do the work. I would say also in the process of conforming us into the image of Christ, Sanctification or purification, as some groups refer to it. It is not something that we can do ourselves, but it's something that we allow the Holy Spirit to do and to take us from where we are in our present relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and to grow us. Now, I think faith comes by hearing. The scripture says this, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And yes, if we're not reading the, if we're not reading the Bible, I doubt we can grow much. If we're not praying, I don't think we can grow much. But what about your prayer life? Do you just give God a laundry list? Do you give God a grocery list? God do this, God do that, God do that, God do this. Heal this person, fix this person, cleanse this person, fix this relationship, make my car run better, make my kids like me, you know. When you pray, how much do you hear from God? Do you hear from God? Do you listen 
Can I say it almost abrupt? Are you quiet? I'll do it nicely. Are you quiet enough so that you can listen? Sometimes my prayer is nothing more than sitting quietly and allowing God to speak to me. See, that's something supernatural. That's something I don't think that even can be taught, but I think it's something that every born-again Christian can experience. If they simply will be still and know that he is God. They recognize because of this sign, and the, 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 these Israelites, these Jews that are there, they understand that this is a duplication or a, or a, 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 a uh, um, illustration of what God had done to their forefathers years ago by feeding them manna in the wilderness. Jesus will refer to that in that. Uh, it wasn't an incident. It was a long period of time. But Jesus will refer to those miracles a little bit later, even in this chapter. So they recognize him as the prophet. Notice that it's, it's capitalized. Now, that's not capitalized in the Greek because they don't have capitalization in the Greek. But who is the prophet? If you turn to Deuteronomy 18, now I've covered this with you somewhat, I guess it was about a year ago, we were in John 1. Well, I don't want to look at it again this morning. Right around verse 15. Moses is speaking here. And he says to, Israel, to the Israelites, he says, The Lord your God, that is Yahweh, that's his proper name there, Yahweh your Elohim, or Yahweh your Adonai, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all your desires of the Lord your God in Horeb, which is Sinai, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see the great fires anymore, lest I die. If you remember the time when they were at Sinai, and the Lord gave Moses the law that the Lord himself was speaking, and there was thundering, and there was lightning, and the people were just scared to death. I don't blame them, all right? I don't blame them. If, if God actually spoke, and all of a sudden we started getting all kinds of thunder and lightning, I, I, I think I would be a little bit um, on edge too. And, and so, remember, they said, Moses, you go up and you talk to God, and then you tell us what God said, and we'll do what God has said. Because if we keep hearing this voice, it's going to scare us to death, quite literally. Um, and then in verse 17, it says, And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them in all I command him. Now, without pulling out a bunch of passages, we've already seen that explained to us by Jesus in the first five, six chapters of the book of John. 
where he, he, and he, he'll talk about this again, that whatever it is that the Father says, that which he says. Whatever it is that the Father instructs him, that which he teaches. Whatever it is that the will of the Father is, that which he does. Does that sound like subordination? Yes, I think it does. Does that mean that the Son is subordinate to the Father? I think in that respect, yes. Does that mean because he is subordinate to the Father, he is not equal to the Father? No. I and my Father are one. Jesus, we'll get to that later in John chapter 10. I've told you guys this, and I just want to keep reinforcing this. Jesus is not a junior God. He's the second person of God the Trinity. Equal to the Father, yet submitted to his will. The Jews understood at the time of Jesus that this prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18 would be the Messiah. Again, we looked at this a long time ago when we were in John chapter 1. It was the same question that the Jews asked John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 21. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. Peter, in the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 22, when after he heals the lame man, he's, he, he quotes from Deuteronomy. Matter of fact, we'll turn there very briefly. Uh, Acts chapter 3, right around the 22nd verse. I'm going to back up just a bit. I'll take it to verse 19 of chapter 3 of Acts. Repent, therefore, Peter is preaching. Repent, therefore, and be converted that... Your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother and him you shall hear in all things and whatsoever he says to you in all things uh, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow and as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. And then down to verse 26. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Peter here is affirming that the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 is none other than, than, than the Messiah. And, of course, he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. So, uh, without turning there, Stephen uses the same argument when he is talking to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. And he refers to Deuteronomy 18 as affirming that this prophet was the Messiah. It was a prophecy of the Messiah, and Jesus is in fact the Messiah. 
See, this tells me that in that period of time, and, and, and yes, there were various opinions, but one of the predominant opinions of, of, of the interpretation of Deuteronomy in the time of Jesus was that the prophet that Moses spoke about was, in fact, the Messiah. Now, if you read later rabbinical writings, they water it down. If you read writings in the third and fourth century by some of the rabbis, they try to water it down. Why? Because, and, and now this I got from a Messianic Jew who said this. He calls it defensive theology because they're trying to change the interpretation because they do not want to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. They do not want to acknowledge that Jesus is their Messiah just as much as he is our Messiah. The people there understood this. So what do they respond? They want to take things into their own hands. Because he is the prophet. He is the Messiah. And let's make him king. Now, they're partially right. Actually, if you, if you really give it some thought, they're, they're in many respects right. But what was the problem here? Because it tells us that, that Jesus was aware that they, they would come and take him by force, come and make him king by force. He withdrew himself again to the mountain by himself to be alone. What was the problem here? First, we have to remember that, and again, particularly within the context of John, we've talked about this already as well when we, we looked at um, earlier uh, in John chapter 2 and in John chapter 3 that Jesus is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was a representation of the mission and ministry of Jesus because as our king, as the prophet, as our Messiah, he had to first come and to pay the penalty for our sins. There's all kinds of Old Testament prophecies that these folks were obviously aware of that one day, and Isaiah is very, very, very uh, vivid in, in this, where God himself will come and restore his people. So there's also an understanding of the person of the Messiah as well, that the, per, the Messiah, and, and again, there were different thoughts on this in, the Jewish, in Jewish thinking, including some of them came up with this, kind of, it wasn't a sound idea, but they thought there were two Messiahs. There was the son of Joseph, and then there was also, um, there was the son of Judah. The son of Joseph would be the suffering servant. The son of Judah would be the conquering king. What they didn't understand, and both of those from the prophet Isaiah, what they did not understand that the one Messiah would come and fulfill both missions. He comes the first time as the suffering servant. The necessity of his coming a second time because he will come and he will be the conquering king. He will come and he will 
judge the unrighteous, and then he will reward the righteous. They didn't see that clearly in the Old Testament. So based on their understanding, and this is dangerous, guys. This is, you know, this, to me this is very dangerous because based on their understanding of Scripture, they began to act out in a way that was contrary to the will of God. Contrary to the will of God. Well, hey, the Messiah's here. Let's make him king. Does that not make sense? Of course it makes sense. If you have a partial understanding. Do we have a partial understanding? Yeah, I think we do. Do we have a better understanding than the Jews did of the Old Testament? Lord knows I hope we do. I think we do. Were these not God's chosen people? Yeah, they were. See, that tells me that, boy, we... we We've we got to walk carefully. And I like what Augustine said about this, though, in one of his writings. He said, he went away from them. That is, he refused to become king. Why? Because he already was king. And that he needs not for any of us collectively now, follow my thinking here. This is important because I'm going to contradict myself in just a second, okay? He needs not for any of us collectively to install him as king. But individually, we have to invite him in, do we not? Does he barge in? Now, there are theologies that say we're chosen before we, whether we ever have a choice or not. I don't even want to get into that this morning. I believe John is clear, Jesus was clear in the Gospel of John that whosoever will, whosoever believes, whosoever believes in him will not perish. And often it is, I think, at times we decide that we're going to be fruit inspectors. And yes, I think Matthew, and Jesus tells us that in the book of Matthew, that you will know them by their fruit. And I understand that. By the way, he's talking about teachers. But sometimes I think we want to add little of our own inserts in the Scripture instead of whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. I think we want to say whoever believes and lives a good and pure and perfect and holy life and believes will have, a, have everlasting life. I remember a friend telling me one time, he said, he said I think that when we get into heaven, we're going to be surprised by the people who are there and we're going to be surprised by the people who are not there. And you know, I just couldn't argue with him. I really wanted to. I really did. But it was like, sometimes we don't get it right. Prophet Micah tells us that we're to walk humbly before our God, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. 
See, he, uh, even in the Old Testament, there, the, there's, a, there's enough in the Old Testament to have not only a relationship with God, but to have an abundant relationship with him. Which, by the way, that was the scripture that the very, 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 very early church used because the New Testament had not been written yet. They used the, old, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. He was already king and doing the work, again, as Isaiah prophesied that he alone would redeem his people, that he alone would provide for his people. He comes and he establishes his kingdom and the, the Matthew and Mark, but particularly Matthew is very big on the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And has given us this understanding that the kingdom of God is here, but it is not yet here in its fullness. We're a part of God's kingdom. We are people of the king. He is our king. We are his subjects because we invited him in to be Lord and Savior of our lives. Their timing is off. And I, I'm going to come back to this next week and probably the week after as well. When we Actually, particularly in two weeks, because next week we're going to look at where... where, where uh, uh, where Jesus walks on the water. And he does that for a rather small crowd, by the way. I thought that was fascinating. The crowd's trying to figure out how we get to the other side of the lake. And then it opens up this incredible discourse where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. But they want to make him king I'm going to finish up. He goes up into the mountains. He goes further into the wilderness. Why would he do that? He gives to us by a pattern of his own life the importance of solitude. It says that he withdrew. Other versions says that he escaped. It sounds like he had to kind of like run for his messianic life. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But at times, do, when we are in a bad situation, and, and I'm not even going to paint that picture for you. I'll let you do that on your own. But we are in a bad situation and we need to escape it. Sometimes the best thing we can do after we've escaped is to spend some time alone with God in prayer. When you disconnect from a bad, well, I will paint the picture, how's that? When you disconnect from a bad conversation and you got someone who's trying to knuckle you under over, over, over something, and, and you escape from that situation, sometimes the best thing we can do is to go and spend time with God alone in prayer. And even what a greater necessity. And as I thought about this now, now J Jesus being God, he didn't have, I hate to say this, okay, because Hebrews says that he was tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. 
100% God, 100% man. Figure that one out because I haven't yet, but the Bible, I believe, teaches it. When I escape from a bad situation, now this is just me. I know you guys don't do this. But when I escape from a bad situation, I play it in my head, right? I think about it, and I think about it. And what happens when you think about it, particularly if you think about it too much, that person who acted like kind of a jerk, by the time you're done thinking about it, he's a real big, he or she, okay, is a very big jerk, right? Okay, I'm not the only one who does that, all right? We play these situations over and over again in our head. But you know what I've found? You know what really helps me? And I will say, God, that person really was a jerk. I'll take it to the Lord in prayer. I'll say, God, that person was a real jerk. And you know what sometimes the Lord says to me? He never says, yeah, you're right. All right. He usually says, well, yeah, what, what about you? And, of course, I'm in prayer, so I want to be reverent. But I want to, I want to just explode like Donald Duck and say, you know what, for goodness sake, we're talking about him right now, not about me. Right? That's what I love about being alone with God. You can pray in any way, shape, or form that you need to. And he's big enough to handle it. I'm not so sure that Jesus, I don't know what that was about. And obviously, it's not given to us in the scriptures, probably for some very good reasons. If you think about Gethsemane, I'm almost done here. All right. If you think about Gethsemane, and what did Jesus say to the Father in Gethsemane? Father, if it is at all possible, I'm paraphrasing, okay, but if it is all possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will. Hmm. Not my will, but your will be done. What is he saying? My take on that is he's saying to the Father, Lord, if there's any other way to do this other than the cross, let's do it. I want to be careful here. Was some of that thinking also taking place on the mountainside when they wanted to make him king? And the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the creator of all things could have taken them up on that and booted the Romans and enforced righteousness. But they still would have had to have sacrificed year after year because Jesus goes in to a holy of holies not made with hands and offers up his own blood once and for all for the sacrifice and for the atonement of our sins. And that had to take place before he takes his place sitting at the right hand of God. So he knows his plan. He knows 
the will of the Father. He is consistent with the will of the Father. Not only submitting to it, but, but, but agreeing and going along with it wholeheartedly. But his human side probably had to work some of these things out in some way, some shape, some form, which is I'm getting way above my pay grade here. But I have to imagine there was something going on between him and the Father that solidified, that, 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 that further, uh, as the Scripture says, he eventually sets his face like flint and heads toward Jerusalem knowing that he's going to the cross. And knowing that those people who are mistaken and some of them don't really get on board with Jesus. We'll see if you've read ahead in John chapter six, you see this. Realizing that those are among all of us who God so loved the world that He gave His only one and unique Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life.